Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. For the seven days starting December 20th, I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, a discussion of the cloak and dagger world of radioactive spy dust with historian of science Christy McCrackus. That conversation includes some discussion of the recent polonium poisoning case involving Russian secret policeman Alexander Litvinenko. We'll have a Christmas poem dedicated to those working late in the labs, and we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Christy McCrackus. She's a science historian at Michigan State University who specializes in 20th century German science. She's just completed a book called Seduced by Secrets, Inside the Stasi's Spy Tech World. One chapter of the book is called Radioactive Spy Dust. I called her at her office in East Lansing. Professor McCrackus, great to talk to you today. Thanks for calling, Steve. My pleasure. What is spy dust and how did you get so interested in it? Spy dust is actually the vernacular name for a police technique used to track people. Um, and it was called spy dust in 1986 by the CIA because they discovered that the KGB had used a chemical marking material to track their officers, and they dubbed it spy dust. So it's not really dust, but it's used on spies, but it actually has a very fascinating history. Um, so it's basically a marking or tracking material used to um, track people, to track money. It had its origins in, um, in criminalistics to track people who stole money from the money box. So a lot of the material in the uh, book chapter about spy dust concerns the KGB and, and the Stasi in East Germany. However, the, uh, the origins of spy dust are really in, in England and other Western countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was researching it, I had expected to find that spy dust originated with the KGB because I was researching the Stasi, the East German secret police and intelligence agency, which no longer exists. I actually found out, and this is kind of fascinating, that it originated in England in the 1930s when forensic science originated they were they were playing around actually with radioactive isotopes to use them as tracers um, on paper and money and and uh, things like that. So um, I think it's uh, interesting that today in in well December 2006 that the British police are 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 tracing radioactive isotopes using the method in a kind of reverse way um, when they're trying to track the uh, murder of Alexander Litvinenko. You talk in the chapter about uh, a, a Dr. Franz Leuteritz of the Stasi, who was the developer of a lot of the spy dust. And and one of the, I mean, some of these stories are right out of James Bond movies. And you've got the, literally the silver bullet. You want to tell everybody about the silver bullet? Yeah, that, that that's actually a very intriguing but chilling technique. Um, <clears throat> you, I think a lot of these people watched a lot of James Bond movies and, got inspired with some of these techniques but because these these techniques were being developed after james bond movies started to come out in the 60s we're talking about the 70s now right right yeah the so-called cloud program it had the code name cloud and presumably that has to do with the mushroom cloud from dropping the bomb but uh the the cloud program occurred in the 1970s started in 1972 and uh france loiteris was the head of it he was a trained physicist uh from Leipzig, he appears to be a very competent physicist. Um, and one of the methods they developed was this air gun, where they could—they um, actually used it so they could. The idea was you could shoot a, 
sort of poison tip bullet like James Bond, um, and you'd shoot it into the tire, and it would leave its mark on the tire. And then you could track a car through busy Berlin traffic um, by marking the tires with this radioactive um, bullet. Amazing. And uh, there was also scandium-46 was a, was a popular isotope that was used. And a lot of this was, to, was really to, to trace people's movements and their contacts. In that sense, it's different from a poisoning that we're, that's currently in the news with the Litvinenko case. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the, um, tracers are used to track people, sure. And the, and the East German police favored the use of scandium-46, which had a... Um, <clears throat> which had a half-life of about 83, 84 days. And it was a gamma emitter, which means it was very penetrating, unlike the polonium-210, the famous radioactive isotope um, used to poison Lipinenko. Um, that was an alpha emitter, so it wouldn't be a very good method to use for tracking. Um, however, I do see some connections, if, if you'd like to hear about them. Well, let's first talk about why a beta emitter is a better tracer than an alpha emitter. Well, uh, the, well, gamma and beta emitters, they, they're just much more penetrating. So, for example, using the technique, the air gun, and, and tracking the, uh, the, the diplomat's car, um, you know, you could get further away and you could, you could still get a reading on your scintillator counter, your Geiger counter, um, and so it was important that it had um, that it was a penetrating emission, uh, whereas something an alpha emitter, the the, the polonium two ten, um, you know, you can just as you probably read, stop that with a piece of paper, um, and so it doesn't get very far. So the Stasi also, and this is even more chilling than the tracers um, at the borders, they used um, the they used cesium one thirty seven, a gamma emitter. So they could see if there were people, um, if people were smuggling people through the border in car trunks and things like that. And that was very penetrating. So it could penetrate through concrete walls and through cars and things like that. We have to spend just one moment. You, you talk in the uh, book chapter about one of the detectors that the Stasi would use to actually see if there was any radioactive uh, emission going on. And this detector is just, I mean, it's, it's not even James Bond. It's out of Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. The, the Stasi was ahead of its time. This was in the 1970s. They developed a, um, a detector that um, there, there were two versions of it. One of it had a it had a vibrating device that you could put under your armpit. So you strapped this harness onto yourself, and so if your Geiger counter, or your simulator counter started vibrating um, under your arm, that means you got some activity. You could also use the other version which was in, hidden in the handle of a briefcase, and so it would vibrate. So you could just be walking down the street, you know, you look just like a absent minor professor, and then your handle would start vibrating, and that meant that you, that you found your prey. Right, and the miniaturization technology didn't exist yet, and so if you see a photograph, as you have in the, in the book chapter, of this harness with the vibrator that goes under your uh, armpit there, I mean, it's like... You know, it's not quite the size of a pair of football shoulder pads, but it's <laughs> but it's pretty big and clumsy, and it, it's just an amazing device. Um, now, there's there's uh, any evidence that any of this um, radioactive material was indeed used back then on dissidents as a as a way to actually sicken them rather than trace them. Um, well, I actually tried researching this and. Um they they tried to 
use it on dissidents to trace them. They they put it on their manuscripts and um, things like that. I haven't found any evidence that suggests they deliberately tried to kill them using radioactive isotopes. However, that kind of information would not be written down on paper in the Stasi files. Um, even even the, the, the stuff I was telling you about the um, radioactive machine at the borders, they wrote that in, in pen and handwriting, and they didn't type it so the secretary wouldn't read it. So there were some things that were super secret. I have found some indirect evidence indicating that they had thought about um, using ra- that they knew that radioactive isotopes would cause cancer in people and could kill people. Um, and so I have a list from a toxicologist from the Humboldt University who worked as a consultant for the Stasi, and he has different lists of poisons like thallium, which is a favorite, um, and ricin, which was used in the famous Markov umbrella case in London. You know, the, these dissidents, some of them died of cancer. No one died of radiation poisoning that I know of. Um, that would have come to light. I think that the KGB is probably the deadliest in using poisons. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're talking about the KGB, let's move on to the Livinenko case because, you know, everybody is conjecturing because Putin was, was with the KGB. Any guesses there as to what was going on? If, if it was a, uh, a purposeful murder, they certainly didn't do much to cover their tracks. Yeah, that, that's, when that first, the case first emerged, I was shocked because it didn't sound very professional. In other words, in, in the, the Markov umbrella case, he got jabbed by umbrella in London, uh, and, and, and the guy walked off. I mean, it's not as though he had, you know, tea with him at a restaurant. He was identifiable. And that's the same with Kokov in the 1950s, who was poisoned with thallium and survived. Now, these are all cases where they, they were bungled because they weren't silent. I mean, there, there are also other cases that didn't become known because they weren't bungled. So you could, you could take it either way until this case is solved. Either they were working in the open and they're brazen and they wanted to send a message or else they bungled it. Um, but they certainly knew what they were doing with the radioactive isotope they used because they knew that it was an alpha emitter so it wasn't easily detectable. Um, they knew if you ingested a, a quantity of it, that you would die. And so whoever decided to use that radioactive isotope knew what they were doing. And for me, I see ways that the the Stasi story can illuminate what's going on now in the sense of, I I think that spy agencies have access to these radioactive isotopes. The Stasi had access to the Academy of Sciences Nuclear Research Center. Um, They could get all the radioactive isotopes they wanted. They had a secret cooperative agreement with them. And I would, I speculate that the KGB, now the FSB, the internal successor organization, probably has the same sort of access. In other words, to have access to a radioactive isotope like that, um, you would have to be, the secret services would have access or a smuggler might have access, although that's a lot of um, polonium to have access to. I think today they revealed that, I mean, it was, it was a very high dose. It was a very high dose, much higher than, uh, much higher amount of polonium 210 than, than you could procure through, uh, normal means if you were using it for some legitimate research purpose. Yeah, right. I mean, it was in the paper. People said, well, you can get it on the internet. You could never get that amount on the internet. And it's actually not that easy to get it on the internet. Interesting stuff. The chapter is Radioactive Spy Dust. It's in the book Seduced by Secrets Inside the Stasi Spy Tech World. 
And you just finished the manuscript. You just sent it into the publisher. That's right. Yep. And it'll come out by the end of 2007. Yeah. Thank you very much for talking to me about it. Scientific American's website has featured numerous articles on the Litvinenko case. Just Google Scientific American and Litvinenko. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a new variety of wheat can make cakes that don't need sugar. Story two, human being's sense of smell is actually good enough to track a scent like a bloodhound does. Story three, people with a particular genetic mutation feel little or no pain. And story four, Scientific American magazine is parodied in the current issue of National Lampoon. Time's up. Story one is true. Japan's National Agriculture and Food Research Organization has developed a variety of wheat with twice the normal wheat sugar content. Should be available commercially in a few years. So watch out for cakes and cookies that say sugar-free on the label. That might be technically true, but the stuff inside is still going to be sweet and filled with calories. Story two is true. People can indeed track a scent relatively well if they're willing to put their nose right on the ground, and if the scent is chocolate, that's what was used in one study anyway. For more, check out today's edition of the Daily Scientific American podcast, Sixty Second Science. And story three is true. A few people have a mutation that robs them of any sense of pain perception, and that's a really bad thing. Pain reminds you not to do things like leave your tongue on the red hot movie projector bulb. For more, see the item in our blog called "More on the Mutation That Lets You Stick a Knife Through Your Arm." That's really what it's called. It's at blog.siam.com. All of which means that story four about Scientific American magazine being parodied in the current issue of National Lampoon is totally bogus because Scientific American magazine is in fact parodied in the current issue of Mad Magazine. What us worry? It is an official rule of journalism that all outlets this time of year must, by guidelines set down in the famous Times versus Sullivan case, publish a very bad parody of the Clement Clark Moore poem "A Visit from Saint Nicholas," better known as "Twas the Night Before Christmas." In keeping with that august tradition, here is the Scientific American podcast's offering called "A Phone Call from the Funder." Twas the day after Christmas, and throughout the labs, all the students were anxious. All the postdocs kept tabs on the sightings of he who would bring them their fate, who would tell them, and soon to rip up or postdate their checks for their food and their rent and their stuff, because being a researcher's tool can be tough. He was there in his office, the PI they could see, but they daren't disturb him. They feared what could be for his grant to do research, which they aided, abetted, was up for renewal, was filed and vetted. The assistant professor he pulled at his hair. He so needed the funding to buy a new chair and some new test tube holders. So high was the price, and accordion folders and beakers and mice, both the kind near the keyboard that gives tendonitis and the transgenic kind predisposed to bronchitis, and a graduate cylinder to be filled up with fluid by that graduate student who says he's a druid. The assistant professor he rose to his feet and he called out for mercy. His panic complete. NIH, NSF, NCI, ACS, HHMI. Let me see some largesse. I need research dollars. My checks I've been kiting. I'm this close to selling aluminum siding. 
At that very moment, the phone started ringing. The students and postdocs, they thought they heard singing. The assistant professor let out a low moan. He took a deep breath, and he hung up the phone, and came out of his office, his hands slightly shaking, and straightened his knees, which were still also quaking. The students and postdocs sat still, held their breath, till the student who lisped said, What's up? What? Confess! The assistant professor stood still for a moment, then broke into a grin, and that smile did foment a cheer from the students, a sound sweet as honey, for they knew that the lab would be swimming in money. The funding is decent, is what the prof tells. No issues, the research involves no stem cells. And now, flush again, prof reverts to a jerk. He says, don't just sit there, go on, back to work! Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Scientific American Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles and science video news at our website, www.siam.com. And the daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and thanks for clicking on us.